You're listening to the Vineyard Milwaukee podcast. For more information about Vineyard Milwaukee, go to vineyardmilwaukee.com. Now here's our podcast. Well, welcome. Um, I, I, some of you are actually listening and greeting each other, so keep keep greeting, greeting. That's great. We used to do that, and we stopped. We need to maybe put that back in our, our little meet and greet opportunity. And some people are getting coffee. There's also, we have quite a few extra hostess um, uh, cupcakes that we have more than enough of, so we're happy to share, but not in our home. So no one in my family may take any of that straight sugar home with them. All right. So good to see you all. Good to be with you this morning. Good to be with you if you're with us online this morning. Um, I'm curious if when you, I know I've opened my sermons a lot lately. When you were a kid, so another, were you good at like persuading people in power towards something like your parents or teachers? Like, could you get them to change their mind? Maybe they were going to discipline you in some way, like take something away from you. And you were like, please give me another chance. Or you somehow had the power of persuasion to get a parent to change his or her mind, or maybe um, if you were at all like me when I was growing up, um, on more than one occasion when we were, uh, we, we, didn't, we didn't have a good job at changing our parents' mind, but we could get them to do things for us sometimes. And on more than one occasion, many occasions actually, as we roamed the neighborhood as children, a stray dog would occasionally follow us home. And that stray dog between our pleading big pleading eyes, and that poor, pathetic, homeless dog's pleading eyes, that dog became our family pet. And so majority of our pets growing up were stray animals that found their way home to our house. And so we did have a little power persuasion in certain areas. But, you know, I'm curious, do you think that God ever changes his mind? I... I know I knew this was a little bit of a scandalous sermon title that I put up there. I know some of you are like, what? You can't get God to change his mind. God doesn't change his mind. And I know there's a lot that we could unpack around this topic. And I know depending on various theological backgrounds, um, there's a lot of beliefs about this kind of thing. What level of influence do human beings have in our interaction with God around the way God thinks? and responds emotionally and all of that. And so we are certainly not going to exhaust that topic today. Um, And I'm sure by the close of the sermon, those of you who think deeply about these things will probably be left with maybe more curiosities and wanderings about this than be settled with it. And so just welcome to the journey of life with God, right? I'm not going to leave you with a complete, you know, concrete thought on this. However... Um, I do believe that uh, we can uh, influence the heart and mind of God, that God has chosen to partner with human beings in the course of history. And so today we're going to look at an example of that as we've been working through the book of Jonah. And we've, we're kind of moved on. If you have been, been tracking with us, you know Jonah was a prophet who tried to run away from God because God wanted him to do something he didn't want to do. And so he tried to run away. He tried to run away to this place called Tarshish, which sort of represents like a pseudo-Eden. So it's sort of this idea of like, we don't like God's path for our life, so we're going to try our own path toward the good life. And 
God, out of his mercy, stops Jonah from this mistake and sends a storm, and Jonah ends up being hurled into the sea, and a big fish swallows Jonah, and he's in the belly of this fish, facing really death, and in this space has this very repentant prayer and this sort of um, place of sort of surrender, admission, submission, humility, recognizing that God that the Lord is the one that saves and that, that that is his only hope. And God commands the fish who then vomits Jonah onto dry land. So here we pick up in the story. Jonah is now on dry land. And what we're going to look at today and think about today is what causes God to change his mind or causes his actions to be influenced by us. And so... What we're going to look at with, in this st- where we pick up with Jonah in chapter 3 is we'll see a city that moves God to the point of relenting, changing his mind, changing his course of actions because of their repentance, because they turned away from their evil ways and turned toward God's compassion. And what I want to suggest today is that I think there's loads of biblical examples from start to finish where both our repentance and our intercession, which intercession are various forms of partnering with God to usher in his kingdom, through prayer, through different kinds of actions, um, ways that we are interceding, that we are mediating, move the heart of God and influence his actions. And so we're going to look at examples of that, both from the city and both from choices that Jonah makes. And so let's read together. Jonah chapter 3. So Jonah has now been vomited by this great fish onto dry land. So Jonah chapter 3. Again, we're going to read the whole chapter. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the kings and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways, their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, He relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. And so we have example and example like this uh, of Yahweh's relenting. They use this term relent, which is very similar to the word repent. But they add like there's like a nuance to it. I'm not going to unpack it all because I'm not an expert in the Hebrew language. But it's this relenting where God changes his mind. And most often in Hebrew scriptures, it concerns his purposes to either bring judgment or blessing on violent people. 
And it's based on their repentance or them turning from their evil ways and turning back to God's compassion. So one example in Jeremiah 18, uh, verses 7 through 10, he said, if, if at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built and built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider, and most translations actually use the word relent again here, I will relent the good I had intended to do for it. Now, as I said, there's lots of stories in the Hebrew Scriptures where God changes his mind toward a people, sometimes based on their re repentance and sometimes based on a mediator, an intercessor that pleads for this people on their behalf, that offers himself or herself as a place of intercession and actually moves the heart of God. Probably the most well-known intercessor is Moses. If you're familiar at all with the Old Testament, I mean, he, he's the guy that, like, God used to set the Israelites free from the oppression in Egypt. And for whatever reason, Moses loved these people. He knew he was called to these people to the point that he was willing to give up his own life. At one point, he said, Lord, just kill me instead. Take my life instead for the sake of these people. And so, of course, this story, we have a prophet in Moses that points ahead to the person of Jesus who does actually offer up his life as the perfect prophet, the perfect intercessor and mediator on our behalf. But if you're not familiar with the story of Moses, probably one of the most famous ones is this moment where he's led these people out into the desert, and he's up on a mountain meeting with God, Moses. And they're, so their leader is away, and as, you know, the parents go away, the children will play, right? So the kids get restless, and they want a physical God that they can worship and have, they say, revelry around, right? They want to party and celebrate and sacrifice to this God and probably get drunk and have a good time. And so they, they bring all their gold, and they make this, like, idol, basically, and they begin to worship around this idol. So here God, who just did all these miraculous things, brings his people free, now they've forgotten about him, and they're worshiping and partying around this golden calf. And so Moses is up on this mountain talking to God. They're having a conversation about this. And so in Exodus 32, 9, God says, I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses. They are stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord as God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. So what does Moses do? He reminds God of the covenant he made with these people. He appeals to God's character, his compassion, 
his promises. And so Moses shows us here that when we're interceding for ourselves, for our family, for others, we can appeal to God's promises. We can remind God who he is, his character, the covenant he's made, the covenant we're under if you're a follower of Jesus. Remind God of the covenant you're under by the, the, by the blood of his son. Remind God that he is gracious and a compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. And apparently when we do this, it influences God's response. Our intercessions release heavenly intervention into the earth. God has set it up this way, his way of partnering with us to usher in his kingdom. Theologian Christopher Wright, when responding to this particular scene and discussing the paradox around this idea of, of how much we influence God, did, was Moses basically not arguing against God but arguing with God? Were they just like working through the emotions around what God already had in mind to do? And all of the paradox that we struggle with with understanding how this works, he writes, the real paradox is that in appealing to God to change, Moses was actually appealing to God to be consistent, which may be a significant clue to the dynamic of all genuine intercessory prayer. Yet perhaps there is a hint of the divine intention in God's fascinating words, leave me alone. The discussion of this line in Jewish scholarship has sensed deep meaning here. After all, God need not have spoken such words or indeed any words at all to Moses. In wrath, God could have acted immediately without informing or consulting Moses in any way. God pauses and makes the divine will vulnerable to human challenge. I don't know why that chokes me up so much. The thought of a God that has chosen to be vulnerable to our hearts, to our minds, to our actions, we actually impact the heart and mind of God. He doesn't have to be impacted by us. He doesn't have to care. He didn't have to choose to partner with us to fulfill his purposes in history, and yet he does. That is who he is. He goes on to say, God not only allows human intercession, God invites it and builds it into the decision-making processes of the heavenly council in ways we cannot fathom. Intercessory prayer, then, flows primarily not from human anxiety about God, but from God's commitment to covenant relationship with human beings. This is just, <laughs> it's just so profound to me. Now, you may see this tension of how exactly God's will and humans will work together all throughout the scriptures. This, these are the tensions theologians argue about, and our different denominations, you know, have all the stuff about what's predestined and what's our will and, and what's already been decided and all of this. But we know that God has ultimate purposes for history and creation that he will see through regardless. But he has chosen to partner with humans to fulfill these purposes, which means he has to work with us. He has to work with our wills, our choices, our personalities, our minds. Imagine how frustrating that must be for God. And yet he must also find joy in it, right? This, also, this must also be his greatest joy. 
And so this is actually good news for us because it means if we are willing, God will partner with us. He will work with us. He will work in and through us. Even if, like Jonah, we're stubborn and selfish and hard-hearted, even then God will still work in and through us if we are willing. I mean, Jonah tried to escape God's purposes for his life, but he was unsuccessful. He couldn't even run away from the call on his life. And that's good news for me because if I'm honest, there are days I want to run away from the calls on my life. I kind of secretly hope maybe I've gotten it wrong and God will release me into my version of whatever a simpler and easier life is, or at least I think it's going to be easier. But God loves me too much for that. He knows that my path to good life, he knows what it is, to the fullest place of my joy and freedom. And so if I try to go my own way, I hope he sends some storms to bring me back because he actually knows. And yet, and so this is good news for me that, that even Jonah, who, who was trying hard to get away, couldn't get away from the call on his life. So if you're at a place where you feel like your attempts at intercession or obedience or partnering with God to do anything worthwhile in this world feels pathetic, remember Jonah, who did the least possible to partner with God. Like, even when he, like, was vomited on this dry land, was like, fine, I'm going to do the least possible. And yet a whole city repents in response to his, like, minor obedience, the least amount of obedience he could muster up. And look at the fruit. God's purposes still came through. So it's not based on you and how holy you are and how gifted you are and your great idea. It's based on what God wants to do. And you just are willing even just a little willing to do it. And so when I started this series, I told you that I felt like God put Jonah in my heart, and I didn't fully know why, but he kept saying to me, Nineveh. And so uh, I asked him, like, when I was working on this particular sermon, God, are we Nineveh or are we Jonah? <laughs> Is Milwaukee Nineveh? Like, who's Nineveh? Who's Jonah in this? What are, what are you trying to say to us personally in, right now? our community, in this city, in this time and place? Are you calling us to repentance like the Ninevites? Or are we like Jonah who need to get our act together and partner with you to fulfill your purposes here in Milwaukee? And I felt like the Lord said, you are both. <laughs> you are Nineveh and you are Jonah. So like Nineveh, we need to turn to, from our evil ways and toward the compassion of God. And like Jonah, we need to recognize that there are ways that God wants to bless and heal the city by partnering with us. And we need to stop dodging the call on our lives by searching for our own pseudo-Eden. And so the good news for us today is that both our repentance and our intercession, our forms of partnering with God to usher in the kingdom here on earth, actually influence God and influence his response to us and his actions. And so what does this look like in real time? What does repentance look like? It says in uh, verse 6, when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king, of his, king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth, 
Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. So this action of this king coming off his throne, taking off his robes, which are his symbol of power and authority, and then sitting in the dust, which is a profound act of humility and submission to a greater king. This king is acknowledging there's a king greater than me. And so he gets as low as he can. And we talked about last week that repentance is most literally translated as a turning around, a changing of your mind or your, your, the ways you're going. It's described as here as giving up your evil ways and turning toward God's compassion. And so it's very clear that repentance is an act of, a, of the will. It is a choice that we make. And sometimes you can make this choice of just turning around without necessarily feeling a lot of sorrow or regret. It might just be a simple, oh, I, God has showed me and revealed a way I'm showing up, a way I'm acting, a way I'm thinking and feeling, and he's calling me to turn away from that, turn around. And it's just a simple, there might be no emotions around it. And that's okay. Sometimes it's like that. Sometimes it's just like recognizing, like, oh, I keep playing these same tapes in my head. These critical, I'm holding on to this grudge toward this person. I'm having the revenge fantasies. I need to stop, right? Sometimes it's just like, I'm binge watching a little too much Netflix. <laughs> and I need to, like, cut it down, right? It's just like these, like, you know, a revelation comes. It's time to make a change. But I do think there are times that we need to be schooled by the Ninevites here. That our repentance at times may need to be a fuller, whole body, spirit, mind experience. You know, I, I, I remember a season for myself uh, where I had been just kind of carrying this chip on my shoulder for a while toward God. And I don't know how long I'd been there, been there for a while, came out of places of deep wounding and anger and frustration, all kinds of legitimate places. And this is all while, I mean, I still am praying and worshiping and serving and do all the things. But it was just there. It was just this little obstacle to my freedom and my fully experiencing God's love for me and me being able to fully show my love toward him. It was just in the way of our relationship, and I couldn't get rid of it. I knew it was there, and I prayed about it, and I received prayer. And I think God was working on it slowly, but it, it kind of was there. And I remember one day, I was down at the lake spending some time with God. And honestly, when I look back on it, I cannot remember exactly how the revelation came or everything that happened around it, but somehow I just became fully aware that this chip on my shoulder was my pride. And I had, my pride had been guarding and protecting me from pain and disappointment and all sorts of things, which our pride usually does. And that somehow, really, my pride was saying, like, I knew better than God what I needed and what he needed to do in my life and the life of my family and my kids and my ministry and all the things. Or that I was somehow entitled to something easier or better than what I was experiencing. All the things that pride does. And so I knew that the only way that this chip was going to come off my shoulder, I kept asking God to remove it. I had to, I had to get low. I had to, I had to get humble. And I had to bow down and submit myself to another king that wasn't me. And for me to do this, I just felt the Lord calling me to physically get low. Like sometimes when we engage our body and what's happening in our heart, it just helps the process. We need to learn to engage our bodies a little bit more in worship and repentance and all the things. 
And so here I was on a semi-warmish day down at the lake. Who knows who was watching me? But I had to physically bow myself onto the ground and bow down and have this, this experience of sorrow and remorse over the way this pride had been holding, holding back my freedom and my experience of God's love. And I just wept and wept and wept. And I just, it was this experience of, of sort of submission. And since that time, it was so freeing and so powerful because the chip really fell off my shoulder that day. I regularly now start my prayer times in a form of bowing. I literally just kneel down, put my head to the ground, and I, this is, comes from Romans uh, 3, I think. I just say, Lord, I offer myself to you as a sacrifice, holy and pleasing. How can I please you today? And I do it part, partly because I am holy and pleasing to him. I've been made whole in the heavenly realm. So I'm in my place of submission. I'm also acknowledging that I have been, I am standing before him holy and pleasing because of what Jesus has done for me. And so I'm not bowing down out of shame and trying to get his approval. I'm bowing down uh, already approved of, but I am remembering that he is the king and I am not. And so I say, how can I please you today? I am here to please you. I am here to serve you. Yes, I'm going to get up and I'm going to ask you for all kinds of stuff. I'm going to ask you for favor and intervention and help and all the things, but I'm going to start by remembering who's in charge. And so that has just been a powerful, freeing posture for me to be in. And so I think we need to stop being afraid of repentance. I think we get so triggered by that because I think we're afraid that if we actually face our stuff and we actually come clean before God, that we're going to be flooded with with shame. But the opposite is true. God doesn't meet us with shame. We may experience some godly sorrow. We may experience some grief in the way that our our chips on our shoulders, our sin, our critical spirit, all our junk has gotten the way of our freedom, gotten the way of our relationship with God. We may experience, but the other side of that is so much freedom. God meets us in those times with, showers us with his grace, his approval, his love. It's a place of restoration. It's a place of healing. And so... I think, um, what does intercession look like? (laughs) This is what repentance looks like. Repentance looks like telling the truth about ourselves, telling the truth to God, remembering that he is king and we are not, and then receiving just the fullness of the grace and the forgiveness and the healing and the deliverance. And so what does intercession look like? It says, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. It looks like obedience. If we use Jonah as our example, you, like I said, you don't even have to have a lot of feelings about it. He didn't have any compassion for Nineveh. Uh, sometimes you, you may not even want to do the thing God's asked you to do. And you just do it. Now, hopefully over time, what I've discovered is as I step into things out of a choice of my will, the the feelings and the compassion, the heart of God follow. That didn't seem to happen with Jonah. (laughs) But that often has happened in my life. And so often the will and the act of obedience comes first. 
and the experience and the heart posture come second. And so it starts with obedience. You pray, you pray for yourself, pray for others, you pray for people in your family, you pay for people you love, you pay, pray for people you don't love. Pray for people you don't love. You serve. Many of you serve a lot. You serve at home. Um, you serve in ministries in church. You serve in ministries outside of church. Um, some of you maybe need to step in a little bit more. Maybe you've, you, you've kind of got a little stagnant in this area. Um, if you need a little inspiration, we have lots of places here at our church. Right now we need some more people on the hospitality team. I mean, I, I can name a lot more, but we're going to start with that. We'll just keep it simple. We could use some more people on the hospitality team. It's not that complicated. We can train you how to do that. So there's a starting place. Um, but you give your time, you give your money, you give yourself. We are all Jonah sometimes. I am Jonah a lot. So we resist, we grumble, we wrestle with self-pity. But Jonah did go. He eventually went and he did the thing God asked him to do and there was great fruit. And so both our repentance and our intercession move the heart of God and influence his response to us. Thanks for listening to the Vineyard Milwaukee podcast. For more information, go to vineyardmilwaukee.com.